Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm very excited. I want to tell you about this jam spot in Hawaii that I've rediscovered. Oh, it's actually, cool. Yeah, it's actually not a new jam spot, but uh, I didn't remember how great it was. So I've been jamming it on Kailua Beach on the sand, and the wind comes off the water really nicely. But the challenge with Kailua Beach is that the sand is very sloped, so you don't have a lot of space to jam. So we had guest jammers in town last week, um, Sasha Huna and his girlfriend, Anne. And uh, Laurie says, why don't we go to Kualoa Ranch, which is this new jam spot. Um, it's also known as Chinaman's Hat because there's a little island right outside of there that looks like a Chinaman's Hat in the water. And so we go to Kualoa Ranch, and the wind is amazing. I think it's better than Kailua, but it's at least equal. It was really good. But what's even better is that there's a ton of grass, really wide and really far, all the way up to the water. So you have a ton of space to jam. Even when there are people there, there's still space to jam. So, Well, that uh, is, ama- that is amazing because you're shaking the cobwebs because that's where there was a post-jam after Worlds when it was in Hawaii. And I remember Chinaman's Hat. And the grass there, and it was an amazing jam place. Yeah, yeah, totally. I remember that too. I was there. That was my first world in '97, and uh, I remember somebody say "guide us whistle," and then a whistle would go off, and I had to catch a guide us, and I was <laughs> totally fired up by that. Oh, that's right. Somebody had a whistle, like a like a little uh, uh, like a police whistle, and they would blow it. And every time somebody blew, it. in fact, I think it was Joey Hudoklin who was blowing the whistle. And so when that happened, people had to do a guidance in the middle of their mob op jams, which is really kind of interesting because we are going to continue our conversation with none other than Joey Hudoklin. So we're going to have part two here. And if you have listened to the first episode, you will know that at this point in the story, he is totally taken with Frisbee. And so with that, we're going to let him continue the journey with us. Frisbee has totally taken you by this point. So where does it start to go towards, you know, that competitive, um, the competitive pull? When does that start to happen? Well, Randy, you know, I have, I'm a, I'm a driven person and I saw an opportunity in this to, uh, be at the cutting edge of something that was really, really um, different and unique, and uh, have implica- that had implications with the nature of all things. And I'm getting a little off track and a little bit spiritual and a little deep here. But to me, I saw this as at the time that the frisbee represents something that is in tune with the nature of all living things, which is a spinning disc from the atoms to the planets with the moons and the solar system with the planets and the Milky Way of the universe as we see it. It's all these series of spinning objects that revolve around each other. And here we have this object that's new and we're at the cutting edge and it's coming from a place of uh, out of the, the hippie era into the new consciousness that had been, that we were carrying through from that era. Um, and 
I thought, well, I can be the guy who takes this to the limit, you know, as, as long as for the foreseeable future. And so I just said, well, that's it. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I got to say that, um, I was inspired a lot by, uh, going to see, you know, my favorite band, hot tuna, watching them play till six, seven in the morning and coming out of there and the way they presented their shows without care for the audience much. It was just all for them, for their artistic creativity and going, wow, there, it is possible to follow your path disregarding the commercial, the commercialism that, that society wants to impose upon other sports. And Richie always liked, said, Richie always had mentioned to me that freestyle was so cool because you're not competing against another guy we are cooperating with each other. And I was like, wow, that's a really cool statement. So I saw this as an opportunity to be the best. Okay. So, um, you know, and tournaments were, were there. So my, my first tournament was the Jersey jam in, I think it was October of 75. And Carrie was there showcasing his, Skills and Cray and all the other guys, CB and Fred, and I played with Roosevelt, and it was really, really fun. And, and the next one was Octad, which I believe was the next spring in New Jersey. And uh, that was, you know, as you guys have heard, that was a big, big eye opener for a lot of people. That was 76 and Stork and Irv Kelb and Chow Rotman and Jose Montalvo and Dave Marini and Doug Correa and Kirkland. the last brothers and, and John Kirkland, Ken Westerfield. And, um, I believe, um, Jim Kenner was probably there and Gail McCall and Monica Lou and, uh, Peter Blurm and, and, and then, and us and, and my friends. And it was a huge, huge, uh, one it, that was a, that big moment that we all experienced when first tournament that really opens our eyes, I think for many, many of, of those players back then. Yep. Yeah. I remember talking to the, the V bros and they were saying that that tournament was really, that's where Irwin's head went. Whoa, what is that? He's seeing Ken Westerfield, you know, throw these looping sidearm throws around trees to this certain spot. And he said, he like, you know, followed him around just in awe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he had an amazing, amazing throw. The, that low down release of the sidearm with the swooping uh, release. Yeah, Westerfield had that amazing sidearm throw. Yeah, that and that tournament was quite spectacular. What happens after that Octad tournament? Where does the trajectory go from there? Well, you know, I I, I just have to say that um, for myself, it went to practicing moves in my living room and which I had been probably doing over the winter quite a bit anyway. Uh, but it, it, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of things to work on at that point that I witnessed. And, you know, and my, my theory was that I'll just try to take everything that I can from that. I like from other players and incorporate it to my game. And, you know, cause everybody had their own unique, moves that they did at that time and it, it wasn't such a a, uh, a uniform 
set of skills that everybody kind of carried around with them and picked and choose from. It was like there were specific moves that people developed. So I tried to steal whatever I could, and, and I figured that if I could steal a little bit from everybody, that I'd have everybody's moves, you know? <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's what I tried to do. And, uh, and so I guess my next train of thought was that, uh, well, I noticed that most everybody was, in fact, I can't think of anyone except for Craig, who was one spin. Craig was the only guy back then who was interested, who could take both spins effortlessly. I wanted to, I, I, I saw the advantage in, in that right away. So I tried to start um, expanding my clock game so that I could delay it and make sure that to, to get both spins on both hands and tip both spins with both hands. Um, and if I could learn one spin with uh, one, a certain move with one spin, I would ch- make sure that I practiced it with the other spin the opposite way with the other hand. And so I was just doing mirror images, that kind of thing, and doing that by myself to develop that uh, ease with, and, and, then made, and then I had to make sure that I received both spins with, with whoever I was playing with. So I'd, you know, I, I was predominantly counter, so most people would throw me counter, but I, so I'd have to make sure I called out for clock. So that was my idea of, uh, you know, getting an advantage over the other players and so I could win tournaments. Did you notice other players noticing you taking both spins that seemed like you stood out for that? Yeah. Yeah. People noticed. Um, and, you know, I would try to, I would try to force the other spin on people and people would reject it a lot of times. They'd just be like, you know, no, don't just don't do that. Okay. Once in a blue moon, but that's an obsolete thing. Really. It doesn't really suit the nature of, of the game. I feel like there's got to be another way to present it to the public other than us against each other, um, because that's not the nature of what we do. But that's for another kind. It's not for me to decide, perhaps. But I think Jeff has some ideas about this as well. But the point is, is but on the good side of competition, it does push our limits of uh, skill in, and it worked for us, especially early on and, and even later on. So it's a lot of fun, too. And there were people there watching us. There were a lot of people coming out. It's a great time. Right, right. So at this point, you're deepening your game. And you're. how often are you practicing? Are you practicing hours every day? Are you just yeah. drilling? Like, how does that work for you? Well, I would practice moves in my living room. And then I would take them out to the park. And so every day I would come out with something new that, and, and, and basically, you know, it was, it was, it was my way of showing off and, and just saying, Hey, you know, like, like I'm, I'm moving with this thing, you know? And so I would learn a move in my living room. And when I got an opportunity to use it at the park, I would do it. And 
you know, break some lamps, banging against the mirrors, and and um, <laughs> and get better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems like every freestyler has that same story of breaking lamps, right. knocking over things, <laughs> parents not really being India doing it indoors. Like, what did you break now? My mom had this. Uh, she would say she'd come in. She'd go, "Oh my God, spin crash." I'd be like, yeah, sorry, mom. <laughs> <Good> crash. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Richie has also got a really deep game too. Is he kind of mirroring you? Are you guys pulling each other or is it, how's, how's that relationship evolving at this point? Well, Richie um, was the guy who found silicone spray that people were using, uh, I think WD-40 and some oils and, I don't know what else it really, but Richie went out and found Cryon silicone spray. And they said, I think this is it. Like, check this out. So that opened up everything. And so we were like, you know, wow, like, should we tell everybody or not? You know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you found um, the magic juice. You found the magic <laughs> juice. Yeah. Richie <laughs> found it. And, um, and, uh, you know, we started experimenting with uh, the rim delays at that point because uh, we could pop it up under our legs and tip it. And, and of course, you know, I've got to say at this point that the fundamental thing that I started in addition to learning both spins was trying to put together consecutive moves. So my game and Richie's together, we uh, consciously were thinking of okay, we're going to start, here's, we got the disc, we're going to do this move, what move do you, are we going to do after that? Then it became, if we could pull off that move, the second one, what move comes after that? In my mind, still to this day, I try to think, okay, first move I'm going to do, if it's off the throw, great. If I can think that quickly and it's a good enough throw, do a move off the throw, what's going to be the second one, depending on how the first one went? and learning to string together spontaneous consecutive combinations. So that became our focus uh, and, you know, taking it as long as we could without uh, resorting to a the delay or tip of any kind. So uh, that became the fundamental concept of our game. And Richie and I were both doing that. And the rim delay started coming into play and I learned how to, Mark Rickleboody and I call it the um, uh, key to the highway is the behind the back rim set uh, as opposed to setting it flat behind your back and setting it up high and trying to do something off of that. Just letting it swoop and turning as you swoop it behind your back. And that sets up, uh, if you watch Daniel O'Neill with clock, he can do that and spin around like two or three times off of the behind the back set. We call that, Mark and I have started calling that keys of the highway because you can essentially do any move off that behind the back rim swoop. I can take credit that I think that I created the behind the back rim swoop into the other hand pull out behind the back right off of it because I had already learned the pull out behind the back with the left hand with clock, uh, I'm sorry, with counter. And then I started doing the right hand swoop behind the back and I figured, well, shoot, this one just fits right in with the half turn. And I got them both together and I was like, whoa, this is new. So, um, you know, that's going to, that was, became a fundamental, uh, 
uh, part of the evolution of, of my game and Richie's for sure. Starting to tie together moves instead of it just being one, you started putting it together like a poem almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Consecutive uh, for as long as, you could, as, as we could go, right? Ending with the catch. And of course, in the very beginning, the catch into the throw release was, was a big part. You know, we never tried to, we, we tried, always tried to lead right from the throw directly in motion with, the, I'm sorry, directly from the catch, continue the motion into the throw. That was, that's Cray's, that's the key to his game. I mean, if you watch Cray, it's all about the catch and with the direct motion into the throw, which, and, and Carrie did the same thing. That's what made it so, so beautiful you know the, the yeah. right off the throw into the consecutive combo continue with the with your release into the next guy's combination uh, makes the makes the game so so fun to watch so now you now you're developing the skill set to tie moves together when did you start thinking about cooperating with each other with say that initial spin did you guys start to come together and do co-op moves? When did that start to happen? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Richie had had uh, that counter uh, left-handed airbrush. So early on, just figured out that we could extend our moves when Richie would do his combo and start brushing it. Uh, and he'd be moving forward and I'd be there in front and he would just go he would bash it over to me and he could really crank up some Z's on that thing and I'd receive it. And then I could do a full combination right off of his. And there was no throw in between. So we were like, wow, this is great. If we can do this, we were like taking up like 30 seconds or something without a drop. And we'll both be doing at uh, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching difficulty and no drop and shit, this will, this will be great if we can do that. So we, that was our first co-op, probably. And then we started thinking about ways we could pop it up under each other's leg and tip it consecutively and back and forth. And, and then at some point, uh, I think I can remember uh, guys like Cray and CB and doing hoops to each other off the throw and off of... Um, you know, rolls were came a little bit later, so people weren't really controlling chest rolls yet. They were mostly just a let it zoom, zoom across to the other hand kind of thing. But off it throws, and sometimes off of airbrushes, there would be hoops that were started to come in. Little by little became more part of the uh, equation. Mostly we just started creating co-ops for, for routines, of course, and... I really couldn't, you know, I remember passing it under each other's legs and doing, trying to create something that was aesthetically pleasing in movement wise. Uh, and speed flow was always a, you know, a big part of our presentation because it, it always looked so good. You know, the Velasquez brothers got the, the 75,000 people on their feet in the Rose Bowl, basically doing speed flow and a little bit of tipping and, and rolls work, you know, and with a super pro. So, um, you know, obviously that's really one of the most dynamic things that we have. And I got to put my plug in out there for player, younger players to develop your speed flow game before you de develop your delay game, because it's really the basics of, and the most fundamentally pleasing for the people who don't know 
about technical moves. They don't really care much about that, but they can. They know about flying through the air. They, they can relate to it better. It's just my opinion. Um, but sponta- spontaneous stuff has started happening, uh, and and of course, to this day, I mean, you can have much more fun, as you know, Randy and Jake, with a co-op than you can with any individual move. I mean, that's where the laughter comes in, where you the extrasensory perception comes in and the psychic ability to read other people's minds and uh, anticipate the next thing happening uh, where the real magic happens. That's the best. And that is the difference between competing and just jamming that you don't get that space competing that the jamming with a bunch of folks is where you get into that meditative state where, as we've said many times, Jake, you know, we go out and play for three hours and you don't even know where those three hours went. Certainly. So, Joey, were you the type of person who choreographed your competitive routines, or was it more spontaneous? Well, we would always have, I think, basically a three-part planned portion of the routine, a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, I always, I've always, even to this day, I still like to start my routines with some speed flow. Um, you know, I've done a lot of different different things, but but let me fast forward a little couple years to I'm still in 77 here so in 78 Richie and I <laughs> 78 it, Richie and I got a job uh, touring with the Aces um, and I was I had a van and we were driving and with Jane Englehart and Richie and I and my dog lived through Michigan in the wintertime and we uh, were very green as far as performance is concerned and you know, we, I never played well in a tournament. We, we, you know, I won some tournaments, but I had never really played well in, in my book. But So we didn't really know how to make our games work in front of people. We just sort of did what we could do, and it was good. So, But when we started doing these shows, uh, we really had to tighten it, everything up. So Richie and I developed our first real choreographed routine uh, to uh, Cosmic Messenger by Jean-Luc Ponty which was a five-minute piece with a beginning uh, introduction. It's an instrumental piece. All these songs are instrumental, but it had an introduction and an out uh, sequence at the end, five-minute song. And, and it's a beautiful piece with flowing measures. And, and we did a two-disc sequence introduction to the routine with some two-disc twirling because we were both working on our twirling, because uh, John, Johnny Dwork was doing it, and we learned how to do it, and we were all doing it in the city back then. When you say twirling, you're talking really padiddling, is what we would call it today, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, I yeah. still call it twirling. Yeah, um, just for everyone who's listening. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we, we developed a routine with some twirling, and, and we would pass it with two discs back and forth with using both hands that we use some airbrushing and tipping back sequences with airbrush, tip back, airbrush, tip back, you know, throw in a little poodle here and a little guidus there, <laughs> a little poodle here. That's a Zappa, a Zappa joke for anyone out there. But um, we had this routine and we got, we got it down and we were going to use it in the Rose Bowl that year, but Richie didn't make it. Actually, I didn't make the 78 Rose Bowl, but we developed this routine. Oh, my God, I'm having trouble. Uh, 70, it must have been 78. 
I'm having trouble remembering, but I didn't make the Rose Bowl in 78 because I chose not to compete in all the events. I bucked the system and it backfired on me. I didn't do well enough in freestyle to make the, the cut to make the Rose Bowl. And um, we had this routine and I think it was in 70, late 78 that we developed this. Uh, yeah, it had to be 78 that we developed this routine in the win- over the winter doing this tour. So we had it ready to go the following spring and we were saving it all through the summer, but we ended up having to use it in the finals of a, of a Colorado Springs tournament because we barely made it to the finals and we had to go up first and we, there was money to be had. So we said, well, let's break out the routine and we broke it out and we won and uh, we took the money even though we went up first in the finals. And we're like, okay, that's it. We're not doing it again until the Rose Bowl. But Richie didn't qualify for the Rose Bowl. And that's how I ended up playing with Donnie that year. And then Jeff, because Johnny Dwork got hurt. So we never did our routine, which we were saving for the Rose Bowl. It was a pretty cool routine, but we've never seen it. But anyway, um, I enjoyed cho- uh, chore- choreographing um, for the most part. I, I enjoyed putting it together up to a point. But I always like to leave room for spontaneity within the routine. Yes, it's always a dance between spontaneity and choreography and, and how each of us incorporates it into our game. But one of the things that I found really interesting about that conversation is that there is a lost routine between Joey and Richie that never really has been seen. They got to do it that one time, and yet it's out there somewhere, kind of like that lost Velasquez brothers routine that never never took shape as well. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it's going to be very disappointing to put in all that time and effort, and you have this thing that you're so proud of, and then you never get to show it. I, uh, I wonder how many of those are out there. Do you have any lost routines, Randy? Um, yeah, it was fairly recent. Um, it was worlds in Karlsruhe and it was uh, me, James and Fabio Sana. And we went out in the semis and we decided to go spawn and we had a few too many drops and we didn't make the cut. And so there is a awesome routine that James Wiseman, Fabio Sana and I have that has never seen the light of day outside of our practices. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. I had no idea. That's crazy. And that's also interesting. It brings it right back to that circle of the balance between choreography and spontaneity. Sometimes when you go spawn, you, you hit the jackpot. Sometimes when you go spawn, things just don't happen. So true. That really is. What an interesting circle right there in that discussion with him. And here it is. Real life taking shape. Well, okay. Well, I just want to switch gears and take us out of this episode um, and uh, talk to the fans a little bit. So, I know that we ask for donations and for t-shirt sales sometimes, and I just want to give you you all listeners out there a little background as to where the money goes. So we've talked about uh, expenses for the website and expenses for podcast hosting and for the live streaming. But um, one of the things that happened at Worlds this year is we lost uh, our streaming computer. It's a $4,000 computer. Uh, and so we've had to replace it. And so one of the places that the donations goes is to help do things like that, replace the computers, replace the cameras, keep us keep all the equipment going. And uh, without that equipment, the live stream 
and really this podcast, all, all of these things that we do, they can't happen without the equipment. So your support is greatly appreciated to help us keep this going and help us spread the jam. You helping us helps the community spread the jam. That really literally is what keeps the lights on, as we like to say. So yeah, thanks for all the support out there, folks. Yeah, thank you very much, everyone. So with that, I'll talk to you next time, Randy. All right, Jake, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming.